0: Hi y'all, and welcome to Ain't No Such Thing, where we tell original southern horror stories. My name's Amanda, and I'll share one with you right now. The Baptist The mid-20th century saw the creeping advance of electrical power across rural America, and with it, the need for power sources, and where no sources existed, men created them. Hydroelectric stations called for deep waters, and men dammed age-old rivers in the name of artificial reservoirs to meet their need. These new waters swallowed thousands of square miles, and with them places once occupied by men. Forgotten cities, abandoned towns, and all of the domiciles and places of gathering within each. The empty streets and structures of Falls City, Alabama, dropped beneath the waters of the old Black Warrior River in 1961, victim of the birth of Lewis Smith Lake, so named for the energy mogul that signed off on the dam that switched over the Warriors' waters. Not that there was much to Fall City before her denizens got their government directives to vacate, but she was home to a few precious souls over the decades. The night of August 13, 1982, was clear, the moon only a slim crescent on high. No clouds obscured the reflection that bounced again off the still waters. And in that blue-white glow, Winston County Sheriff's Deputy Floyd Weston first saw the sobbing, handcuffed fisherman whose actions summoned the search and rescue team at this late hour. The 12-year veteran paused as he killed his truck's engine, taking in the scene. The fisherman, One Jake Weaver slumped against the muddy tire of the responding officer's Plymouth Fury yelling between tearful gasps, "'He backslid! He backslid!' and nothing else. The man had radioed his son was lost to the lake waters, but there was blood and weapon evidence in the boat, enough to detain him. Deputy Mark Manchin met Floyd at his truck as he popped it to start unloading the scuba gear. Are they really putting us in the water under dark and night, Floyd? Is it worth the risk for a boy that's surely dead out there? Mark threw a tank strap over one shoulder, made for the boat launch, and called back. Only if he can swim short half his blood supply, because that's about what's left in his daddy's bass tracker. Floyd moved in slow motion by the quarantine two-seater on his way to the sheriff's flotilla vessel. Mark hadn't exaggerated. The kid took a heavy plastic paddle to the head, judging by the sheer amount of crimson that lined the boat's waterproofed innards. The things folks perpetrate on their own children, he thought angrily. Ten minutes was the ride out to the spot where Daddy Weaver pointed to as the last where he saw a junior before he fell overboard. Every other son in Winston-Walker counties was a junior in those days, by God. The spotlights betrayed nothing on the lake surface around there, so it was into the drink for Floyd, Mark, and the other two responding team members, Hank Parsons and Billy Gabbert. Both of them were expert divers with years of pulling corpses out of overturned trucks under bridges and trapped cars in bubbling culverts, just for example. They used the old out-and-back search technique, dropping 100 feet of rope off the side with wrist loops at quarter intervals down the length. Mark was at the end, a reflective buoy tethered to his belt for tracking from the tender on the boat. Floyd was next up with Hank and Billy above them in that order. In murky waters in the dead of night, the boat pilot, a young man named Jared, was a tender to keep the heading and distance communicating with beats or tugs in one direction or the other and in defined sequences down the rope. Night searching was dangerous work and likely totally blind even with lights. One at a time, they splashed in from the side of the boat, the water still hot from the summer day, and took their loops. Jared pulled at the line's knot on the anchor to check it and flashed a thumbs up. Mark rose an inch or two from the water, then lunged forward and down, his glittering buoy dancing a jig in its orbit above him. The rest followed in turn, adjusting their descent as the rope pulled and gave. Floyd saw nothing. The night and the silt utterly hooded him. Nothing new to Floyd, though. He kicked and crawled along the long-practiced trajectory on instinct, felt the pull ahead as Mark hit his depth, and then behind as he found his own. They swam left first, under the tender signal, two beats left, and then three right. Then they turned 180 degrees and retraced their arc until beginning anew, right of the original starting point. Not ten feet into this fresh territory, something brushed Floyd's extended right bicep with a soft, rubbery thud. He jabbed at the line with his looped hand to stop the team and grasped toward the mystery object with the other. Anxious seconds passed beneath the hollow, gulping sound of his own breath from the respirator, and then it was there. Forefinger and thumb found it at once. A collapsible, cloth, maybe rubber thing? Strings wrapping around his probing digits. A shoe! But nothing in it except for the seeping dread that its drowned occupant floated nearby. He shifted it to the loop hand and used it to tap the rope to start the swim again, and the team above him moved on in response. Below him, the line suddenly went slack. Mark was either ascending, swimming sloppily, he was too good for that, or he left the rope. And just the thought of that was preposterous. Something was wrong. Floyd popped the line again to stop the guys above. Before he could do anything, the tender sent down two right beats. Keep moving. Annoyed from anxious uncertainty, Floyd reached with his free hand right and tugged four times, a little too hard, on the tether, the distress signal. The tender and the other divers would hold position until he signaled again. He let loose the shoe, then slipped his left hand from the loop and clasped it around the line, his only guide as he descended its length toward the space where Mark used to be. He glided elegantly through the murk for a man so petrified by what he might find at his destination. And, oh no, the vacant loop at the end of the rope found his hand far quicker than he'd hoped. He groped around for a moment as though Mark might be nearby, perhaps perpetrating some ill-conceived graveyard joke, but there was nothing. Then, as he gripped the line for the three tugs that would signal to abort and pull up, he glimpsed light down and away. The only luminescence he'd sensed since dropping in. But how? The deeper the darker. That's just physics, right? Heavier sediment and further from the sun. Hell, he couldn't see his own dive light dangling from his wrist before his face. He closed his eyes to shake the illusion, but it was there again when he opened them. It had to be Mark, disoriented or distressed or both and floundering down there not knowing which way was up. Floyd had to move before Mark's light left his range of vision. His second set of four tugs on the rope signaled for help, and he kicked with conviction toward the inexplicable will-o'-the-wisp that called to him. Less than thirty feet on and just twelve feet down, one strong pull of his arms drew him out of the dark and into clear waters a translucent expanse that replaced his gulping breath sounds with a throbbing heartbeat. All the local in jokes and folklore were true. Before him, Floyd beheld Mayberry come Atlantis, 1950s Americana preserved in an aquarium. The boulevard of Fall City awaited, and the stained glass of the old First Baptist glowed brightly from within. Floyd tried to convince himself that the church bells suddenly ringing midnight in his ears were a figment of the tall tales shared between boys at Royal Rangers campfires extinguished decades past. Mark had discovered this same spectacle, felt the same wonder, heard the same hymn that summoned the lost to the found. He was in that church. Floyd had no doubt about that. His eyes turned up at the black void above him now. The others would be along to help but he sure couldn't wait. Oxygen was finite down here, and the list of things that could go wrong was certainly not. The skeletal frames of Fall City clarified as he kicked into town, their fractures and dislocations vivid in proximity of his light. He swam at the second story above the open-air post office and barbershop, but passed the tack and leather room atop the feed store. Their contents and occupants long washed away, these places yawned their death grimaces from every angle. Their contorted, window-and-door-frame faces surely brick-and-mortar facsimiles of their long-gone tenants. The bells grew louder, and the church loomed just past the corner gas station. The sanctuary roof was intact compared to the rest of Falls City. Floyd couldn't find an opening to slip through, or even to scan the scene within. He swam down to a shattered window, only a neon-blue shard of glass supported the hovering halo that remained of a devotee's handiwork atop the frame. His heartbeat and the bells clanged a percussive symphony now. Grasping the inside edges of the window with each hand, deftly avoiding edged glass, Floyd pulled his head through. There was a diver, hovering motionless in the drink before the altar. Mark! The dive light on his partner's wrists wafted wanly in the bare current of the lake, not bright enough to penetrate the distance and the muck between here and the rope. But there was another light source beyond Mark. Floyd saw it now, as he slow-stroked along the wall of still-aligned church pews and took in the eldritch drama before him. Past the rotting altar, behind the choir box, a pair of elaborate floor candelabras framed the baptistry, seven high candles each burning in water like the souls of the damned, and between them a creature, an entity, that Floyd's Pentecostal upbringing assured him must be a demon risen straight from perdition. The thing drifted in a tattered black cassock, the blood crimson sash shredded as a hemorrhaging wound across its belly, an eyeless black leather executioner's hood, the kind from the old medieval comics Floyd loved as a kid, just the head. A glinting gold cross angled down and right across its face like an arrow. A jutting skeletal mandible escaped the leather at its bottom edge. Things only tied to humanity. No feet or legs extended beneath the robes. But there were arms and hands. They were neither flesh nor bone but spinning congealed eddies in the water flowed out and back on themselves to make spindly, too-long talons, dark rivulets distinct from the waters that fed them. Clasped high in one of these fluid claws was a boy, lifeless and limp, and missing a shoe. It was Junior Weaver, condemned here by his own daddy to the mercies of this monster fall city. Floyd floated adjacent to Mark now, saw the beast's other hand caress the kid's face with tendrils of brine that seeped thick into eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. As it poured in its self-same solution, it lifted him in a slow, rolling arc above its head, a demonstrative ritual for its captive congregation of two. Then it abruptly, violently body-slammed the boy into the baptistry in a bastardized mockery of the sanctified dunking they'd all taken as teenagers looking to be saved. Floyd jerked at Mark's shoulder, spinning the other man to face him in hopes of seeing his own terror shared, and thus his sanity confirmed. But Mark was gone. His dive mask lifted, his eyes, ears, mouth, and nose engorged by the Baptist disembodied liquid grapnels. He was next in line, and Floyd realized he was on deck. A clumsy attempt at retreat from this nightmare found Floyd flailing between the pews, all his swim talent forgotten. He noticed the decomposing flock seated around him then. Waterlogged cadavers of all walks rose to look on in sympathy and support, their own backslides halted by salvation sealed with holy baptism. Recognition calmed his panic even before the encroaching horror. These were the missing children, the lost swimmers, the drowned lovers claimed by the lake for two decades, but truly brought to Calvary by the devout and devoted on watch for their souls. How was he any better than these assembled neophytes? How were his sins any less evil and desperate for absolution? Floyd looked up at the Baptist hovering over him now, its fingers poised to purify his life of misdeeds and heresy. Grateful, he pulled away his dive mask with one hand and his respirator with the other ready to be saved. You've been listening to Ain't No Such Thing The Baptist Written by Kevin Laporte Narrated and produced by Amanda Rachels If you enjoyed this story follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube for weekly audio and video content. Ain't no such thing. All stories, characters, and situations. Copyright Inverse Press, 2019. All rights reserved.